So today's sixth lesson of Talmudic Ethics deals with an issue and a topic that is so hot right now, <coughs> it's wild. The topic is copyright and intellectual property. And there are so many areas in which this question is coming up. Literally on Friday, so we're talking, what, three days ago? On Friday, a court ruled in the United States of America that art created by artificial intelligence cannot be copyrighted by the so-called artist who prompted AI to create the art. Let me explain. Have you guys heard of ChatGPT? You can ask it questions, you put it, you, you open this thing up, you type in questions, it answers it, you can have it write papers, essays for you, it has all, kids can type in, write a book report on Gone with the Wind, oh, no, that's a movie, on uh, All Quiet on the Western Front, To Kill a Mockingbird, oh, it was also a book, okay, good, Gone with the Wind, I don't know, just knew the movie, I guess, but anyway, right, so you can type that in, boom, you have an original essay. And if you type it in more than once, you get a different essay each time. It's unbelievable. And you can say, write it in the voice of a fifth grader, sixth grader, seventh grader, whatever. It's wild. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of crazy how bright this thing is. However, not however, at the same time, they also have an engine that creates art, which means that you can type in, create a painting in the style of the Renaissance masters depicting a rabbi um, teaching a class at a synagogue. Boom. And the next thing you know, it creates original art. Here's the question. The person who typed in the prompt, can they claim that that art is theirs and have a copyright on the art? So literally, a judge just ruled on Friday that you cannot have a copyright on art created by artificial intelligence, even if you're the one that prompted it, that told it what to create, but you didn't create it, it's not yours. You can't claim it for yourself. So anyone can use it. It's interesting. And these are far, there are far-reaching um, implications to these types of questions and these types of, uh, of cases that are coming up before the courts. I'm sure you all are familiar with the fact that in Hollywood right now, there's a strike. What's the main, huh? Oh, sorry, go ahead. Right. So what's the main sticking point right now? Exactly. The studios want to be able to use the digital likeness of the actors and their voices and be able to create new scenes, new, even potentially create a movie or a show without the actors having show, actually being there. Because if you have enough footage, enough images of, of, of a person and enough samples of their voice, you can create a digital rendition of that person. And the big question now is who owns, who, own, who, who owns you? <laughs> Do you own yourself? Does the studio own you? And that's a major piece. And, you know, when, when, when an actor signs a contract, there's, it's, I'm sure it's a very long contract with a lot of legal, uh, legal terms and, and pieces to it. And one thing that's on the table is who owns the digital uh, uh, the persona of this individual? Um, and right now, currently, there is a lawsuit going on. I think um, Sarah, what, she's a comedian, Jewish comedian, Sarah Silverman, Sarah Silverman. She is suing OpenAI, which is the company behind ChatGPT and, and others, 
for taking her information and feeding it into their, to their, um, you know, to the computers, and then learning from her comedy or her movies or whatever, whatever she's created, she's actually suing for, you know, not, not giving consent for her stuff to be used. And, and this is, because where does, think about it, where does AI get its information from? It's just scraping it from wherever it can find it. The question is, did it ever get consent? Who consented that this company now should have all this data and should be able to use it um, to then you know, you know, put out you know, more, more content that is you know, created by the computer, but really driven by people that are in, that, that have, whose ideas and, and, and you know, artistic uh, genius is being fed into this system. Does that make sense? Yeah. Side of it is, is in medicine. Yeah. Because, you know, you can take all of these elements faster and more complete than before and perhaps come up with a cure for, you know. <laughs> yeah. And I, in fact, I have spoken to doctors who have told me that they can feed, so what they, what they did, one of, the, one of the many, I don't even know how many different areas of application AI is being applied in, in medicine, but one of the interesting areas of application is they fed the, these computers, they fed them uh, scans, like bone scans, where um, the patient turns out had cancer, but doctors could not, could not detect it in the scans. And they fed these, along with other ones that did not have cancer, right, to the computer, and the computer is able to see things now that doctors can't see, which means that the computer can read a scan and come up with uh, not a certain diagnosis, but it might... The human eye can only know what it can know, but the, but fed you know thousands, tens of thousands of samples, the computer picks up on things that the human beings might not be able to pick up on. So there's there's incredible um, advancements and 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 potential applications that are beneficial. There's also a lot of stuff that's scary about about AI. Today, it's not about we're not talking about AI specifically. It's really more about the general notion of copyright. Who owns? When you create something, do you own it? Should you own it? If you own it, is it like is it considered as if you own it or that you have the right to profit from it? Those are two different things. Your ideas, do you own them or does it mean that you have the exclusive right to make money off of them? So we're going to look at this from a classic U.S. legal perspective. And then we're going to look at this from a Jewish perspective and come up with some interesting ideas. So number one, the first point, the first major point of today's uh, session is that the issue of copyright is a relatively new issue. And the reason is because until the printing press, right, there wasn't really a question, right? Who owns the right to your book? There's like one handwritten copy. Like, what's, what's the question? Uh, that someone's going to write, someone's going to copy it over? The author would probably say, fantastic, I'd love for more people to learn from it, right? So, hey, good to see you. Good morning. Um, so, so the issue of copyright really only came into a legal focus and a legal, major legal concern with the advent of the printing press in the 17th century. So now it's been going on for a few hundred years, but you know, it, it's, not, it's not that old of a, of, of a topic in the area of law and ethics, which the reason why I'm sharing this with you, and it's very important, is because the implication of that is that when you look at the Talmud, you're not going to find direct discussion about copyright law because it wasn't a concern. 
It wasn't a problem that had to be addressed. So what we're going to do in this conversation when we approach the copyright and intellectual property from a Jewish perspective is we're going to have to kind of be a little bit creative in applying Jewish precedent to these types of cases. All right, so that's the, uh, that's the, that's the kind of the disclaimer and, and, the, and the introduction. Now, in our country, United States of America, so the Constitution actually provides um, a rationale for copyright law as follows. This is the, on the first page, text number one, page 138. Um, it says the following. This is a quote directly from the U.S. Constitution, Article 1, Section 8, and I quote, to promote the progress of science and useful arts by securing for limited times to authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries. In other words, the law provides a limited time exclusive right to authors and inventors to their writings and discoveries. And what's the, what's the rationale? Why does the law provide that? Exclusive rights to their writings and discoveries. Why does the, what's the rationale in, in the first line? Help me out here. What, what, what's the reason for copyright law? So nobody else can bid on it. Good, what else? It says to promote the progress of science and useful arts. How does that promote, the, how does keeping something, how does, how does uh, um, uh, um, uh, you know, kind of, securing a uh, uh, exclusive rights to your writings and discoveries. How does that promote progress? Tell me, tell me how, how do we, yeah? I just want to say that this is uh, not so black and white because I just heard a lecture about Jonas Salk and how you order a MacBook Pro. What? No, 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 no. go, go. I just heard a lecture at Ollie. Yeah. About a woman who, or many women actually, but in this case it was Jonas saw a lot of the research, major research, was done by a woman who never mm. credit for his. Yeah, and I mean she was really. Uh, this happened a lot with women in science and arts and everything. Right. And so it's it's interesting because you don't really know. You know, when you when Einstein can say something, you know, maybe he had his wife helping. Right. Interesting because Jonas Salk is lived in Pittsburgh, and I believe when I was growing up, I'm from Pittsburgh originally. I grew up there, so when I was growing up, I re recall hearing that he lived like in the neighborhood that we lived in, which was called Squirrel Hill. So interesting. I don't. I don't. I never confirmed that, um, but it does not surprise me what you say that. You know that sometimes people are that, and and women, especially in the fields of science and medicine and other areas, might be cut out of uh, of the credits, as it were. But here, but I mean that's a bias that that has to be addressed. Here, here we have the general. Sorry. Yeah. Just, just a quick thing. Jonas Salk was a convention. He didn't invent the vaccine. It was a team. Got it. it he was the face of. He was the face. They could have given it to a hundred thousand people who were involved. In Came out the same right. the vaccine. These people are people that are chosen for the Nobel Prize by people from Norway. It's just Norway. Yeah. Sweden. Sweden. Yeah. And um, he's just the face of it. You have to remember that. Just an aside, Oppenheimer didn't invent the atomic bomb. The movie makes it very clear. The only reason why we were able to get the atomic bomb is they were all putting the army and said, if you don't work together, you're going to be put in jail. Mm. I mean, 
Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Excellent. And that's what I was thinking as well. Yes. In other words, in other words, when the Constitution says to promote the progress of science, etc., then we are giving exclusive right to you know to what you've created. The rationale is at least one way to read it, which I'm reading it the way you're reading it, is that what is the incentive for creators to create if they don't have the opportunity to exclusively profit from their creation? By the way, this this is a, a, a subject. This is an area that that blends into bleeds into other areas. For example, pharmaceuticals, right? Should drugs, you know, how long should that exclusive patent be on a drug before before generic uh, formulations are allowed to be, um, you know, on the market? And the U.S. is different than other countries. And there's, there's a lot of discussion about, you know, should that be exclusive, should it not be exclusive? I'll tell you an interesting story in the Talmud. This is, not into, this is branching off into a little bit of a different area. Um, but pharmaceutical companies make that argument. They say, if there is no financial incentive, then why would we invest so many millions and millions and even billions of dollars to create new drugs to combat, you know, disease illnesses or to make people's lives, you know, make, help people live longer and healthier if we're not going to get financially, uh, you know, if there's, no, if there's no potential windfall at the end of that journey. There's an interesting story in the Talmud um, where there was a rabbi who was sick and he went to a healer and this woman put together a, I don't know, some sort of combination of herbs and spices. I don't know. She put together this, this potion. And he w- went every day to take the potion, and it was helping him. He was getting better. And then it was, but he had to travel every day to her. And then Shabbat was approaching. And on Shabbat, he wasn't going to travel. So he said to her on Friday, he said, tell me the, form- tell me the formula so that I can make it for myself on Shabbat because I can't make it. Then. She said, I can't tell you. It's a secret. It's a proprietary formula. I'm not telling you. He begged. He pleaded. said, I'm not going to tell anybody. It's, you know, your secret's safe with me. Fine, she says. She trusts the rabbi. She gives him the formula. The next day, the Talmud says, the next day, Shabbat, he gets up. This was, by the way, this was a life and death situation for him. It was an illness. He gets up at the pulpit for a sermon, and he says, this is the formula. He, he, he reveals the secret formula for the, for the medication. Huh? <laughs> Apparently not. So there's a discussion in the, um, in the Talmud, uh, in the commentaries, whether or not the implication is that this was a good thing or not a good thing. And some commentators say it was that, that the lesson here is that when it's a question of life and death, you can't stand behind um, secrets, right? If somebody is potentially, you know, if you could save a life. You have to re- so does that mean that according to Talmudic law, that drug companies should never be able to hold any patents on the drugs they create once they formulate it? Anyone should be able to copy it and reproduce it? Is that the implication? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Then the counter argument is, fine, take away the financial incentive, then you're not going to have any drugs. <laughs> so that good. So how does that help society? And then the counter argument against that is, well, maybe it should be subsidized some other way. 
But today's class is not about pharmaceuticals. It is about the general notion, more about intellectual property and copyright law. And so the question really is, from a Jewish perspective, is copyright a legitimate thing? Um, is it not? And, and, and the way we're going to get into this question is by looking at a case study. This actually happened, the story happens um, probably a little under 200 years ago. And it's, it's as the printing press is really, you know, taking, uh, is really picking up and, 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 um, and being used in Jewish circles to print many Jewish books. And, and it's a game changer. By the way, have you ever seen people shuckling? You know what shuckling is? Going like this when you're praying or studying. So like you'll have a yeshiva. We have like a, a yeshiva going on, as you guys know, for the last two weeks. So the yeshiva students, when they sit down, they're learning text, they go like this. Why? By the way, that's why Jewish eyes are so bad. Yeshiva students, everyone wears glasses because your eyes are going in and out. I'm kidding. Maybe. But the question is why? And I remember seeing a theory. I don't, I don't know that this is actually the reason. But someone once posited it's because back in the day, before the printing press, they had one copy of the Talmud. So how do you have, so people sat around the, the copy of the Talmud, and they would go in and out. They would take turns. It's like... I don't know, pigeons, you go in, you go out, you go in, you go out. Again, it sounds a little more humorous than real. I, I don't know that that's actually the source and that's actually true, but it's interesting. The point is that for many years, all Jewish texts were hand copied, as were all texts hand copied. And here we have a question that comes in. Now that we have the printing press, here is a question that comes in. This is case, the case study on page 139. And the question was asked to Rabbi Yosef Shaul Natanson, who was a leading rabbi of his time. So the question is asked, you'll see this, the question is asked by a chief rabbi to this rabbi, which makes him the chief of the chief, right? The chief rabbi of Zalkova is asking this rabbi because he doesn't know, which means this is a very senior rabbi who's being addressed this question. And he wrote a book of responsa, of, of Jewish legal responsa. Basically, he wrote a book that was a compilation, this rabbi, Natanson, of the questions he was asked and the answers that he gave and the rationale that he, that he came up with in giving the legal rulings that he gave. And, and he published it, and we have it till this day, and it's a, it's a great resource of Jewish law. So here's what the question is. Dear Rabbi Natanson, page 139. Mr. Abraham Goldberg, a publisher of Hebrew books in Lvov, is suing Mr. Hirsch Balaban, who wishes to print a set of Shulchan Aruch, which is the Code of Jewish Law, by Rabbi Yosef Cairo, with a commentary called Pre-Toar. So again, just to stop here for a moment, just to get, get everything clear. Oh, let me show you something. One second. This is the book. Shulchan Aruch. This is the Code of Jewish Law. I have many volumes of it. This is one volume that I just... Notice right there on the shelf. So this is, a code of, this is a copy of the Code of Jewish Law. This is what it looks like when you open it up. So you have the main text is in the boxes here in the middle on each page. And then you have the commentaries that run around the Hebrew text, the main Hebrew text. You see that? You guys see that online? Okay. So this fellow, uh, Mr. Balaban, see if the commentary is here. It's, I don't see it here. Anyway, so um, Mr. Uh, uh, um, Hirsch Balaban is wanting to print, this is in the, eight, in the uh, 1800s, he wants to print this book with a commentary called Pre-Toar. Okay, that's what he wants to do. 
But he's being sued now by another publisher, uh, Goldberg, Mr. Abraham Goldberg, who is trying to block that, um, that publication. Why? So let's continue inside. Goldberg claims that he bought the rights to this commentary from the author himself. In other words, the pre-Toar, the, the actual main text, the Code of Jewish Law text, was written hundreds of years before. The author had passed away. No one has the rights. Any, anyone can print that. That's, like, that's well past any, anything. But now there's a relatively newer commentary, the pre-Toar. This guy Goldberg is saying that he bought the rights to that commentary, to print that commentary. And now Balaban is wanting to print it you know, in his edition. And uh, so the question, so Goldberg claims that he bought the rights to the commentary from the author himself. Does Goldberg have any claim against Balaban? Sincerely, Shmuel Valberg, chief rabbi of Zalkova. So he's asking this Rabbi Nainson what the deal is with, uh, with, with uh, you know, is there such a thing as copyright or not? So this is a question in Jewish law that comes up. You know, can one publisher stop another publisher from publishing a commentary claiming that he has the rights to that commentary? Um, the, the question that would be enhanced, and I think this was the, the facts on the ground were such, that Goldberg, the one who claims that he bought the rights to that commentary, he's not even planning on publishing it necessarily anytime soon, but he's trying to block the other guy from publishing, saying that I got the rights to it. So if I have the rights, you can't publish it. So I guess the question that I would ask to you is, what do you think? Do you think that Goldberg has a good claim or not? Who thinks Goldberg has a good claim? Goldberg is the, is the plaintiff trying to stop the publication of the, of the commentary in the other guy's edition. Yeah? I think so. Copyright. Well, it never stopped me from pretending. Uh, <laughs> who, who, uh, so if you thought that, that Goldberg has a good claim, why? Mm -hmm. Could be that it was published, you know, earlier that he published it earlier, or the author himself published it earlier, and then subsequently Goldberg bought the rights. And once it's out there, someone can copy it, retypeset it, and you're up to the races. So, yeah. Didn't this happen with the Dead Sea Scrolls? That that. Um, yeah. I, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, the, who owns that? Oh, you're saying it did happen. You're saying whether who, you know, who could publish it? I'm sorry, what? As, as far as who owns it or who could publish it? Somebody said, I own, I can't publish this. Hmm. And then another person did publish it. And the person that published it absolutely got away with it. Hmm. Because the person that said, I own the rights to it, there was finagling or whatever, but it ended up that the person that was like, and it was on the computer and everything, so everybody today can see yeah. the Dead Sea Scrolls. They're not, the originals, of course, are in. Uh, yeah, they're in museum. But I'm yeah. talking about, uh, I, I could see the Dead Sea Scrolls, yeah. and it was only when it was done surreptitiously and they interesting. Back. Interesting. Well, um, what I think the the main work with Dead Sea Scrolls is deciphering what it's saying and what it means because the, the script is an ancient type of Hebrew script that's not in use today. And um, yeah, the Hebrew letter the letters are different in a lot of the scrolls. Yeah. Can I just say something about the sure. I don't know what everyone watches on television, but sometimes I watch like 
these things, I guess, are masculine, I don't know. But there's this thing for Viagra. I am not interested in Viagra, but this man gets on and says, I can get you Viagra for 87 cents a pill instead of, did anybody? Oh God, I must have watching really ridiculous <laughs> But he can, and, and the prescription, he's very blunt about it, and then shows you how much it is, it's like $400 or something. But I figured out that you get seven years as a monopoly. Mm -hmm. So this must be over now, and here this man, who doesn't look exactly great, but he's on television, right. saying this is Viagra, right. it's the real Viagra, and it's only 87 cents a pill. I've, Interesting. I've, I've, I don't know how, yeah, I, it's... I'm just saying, I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting. What? Right. He said. I'm sure it does a bit this. I would imagine. You had a question? Come. Yeah. Uh, I, I would just say that the code of laws itself would probably be fair use. For yes. Purpose, but the commentary would be, uh, More proprietary. Yeah. Yeah. Protected by Caparilla. Good, good. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, really? Huh. Nice. So um, that is a, yeah. So the question that was asked the rabbi is, you know, does Jewish law have a thing called copyright? Is, is that even a thing? Or once somebody writes a commentary, maybe as part of you know, Jewish scholarship, maybe it's owned by everybody and there is no exclusive rights. Um, so what we're going to do now is kind of go through this topic from a Jewish perspective, considering, remember, and the key here is that there is no direct um, precedent or teaching of this in Jewish law because... There is no, um, there is, there was no copyright. This wasn't a quite before the printing press. This this wasn't a question. Yeah. The Jews really complicated because I'm reading uh, Dennis Prager's commentary on the Bible right now, on the Torah, and you know, he'll say this word was mistranslated. Mm -hmm. That's the problem I see in this as well. That there's no ultimate thing. You know, Goldberg can say this is the official Rabbi Yosef Caro. But I would buy the Arizolish commentary of the commentary where the words will be changed or whatever. And uh, you see that all the time. The rabbis will get up and say, well, they said he was asleep, but in reality it said he was dreaming. Right. You know, it's just simple things. Um, and I run into that problem often. And then time I go to a class, it says, wow, that's really the, you know, since I don't speak Hebrew, I'm sure, whatever you say. But, uh, <laughs> right. Yeah, no, you're right. So, so there is, there is. I think the point here is that there is a lot of um, novel and and enhancements that happen with the with the commentaries, and a lot of shading that can happen to the text, which is very important. And you know, it's, it's the question is, is that subject to any form of copyright law in Jewish law? So, one way to look at this is that, you know, if you're thinking about in modern times, what would Judaism say, what Jewish law say today about copyright law? One way to look at this is, the, the easiest answer is by quoting text number two. 
Text number two is kind of an overarching general statement that says that Jewish law respects local law. In this case, it would be U.S. law. Text number two, Shmuel said, the law of the land must be obeyed by Torah law. So according to this, and this is from the Talmud. The Talmud says that Dina, in the Hebrew it's Dina, the Malchut Adina, the law of the land is, must, be, must be obeyed based on Torah law, based on Jewish law itself. And the meaning of that is that when you live in a country that has laws, um, and it's not Jewish law, but the laws are fair and just overall, and we're talking about financial, typically this, is, this teaching is regarding financial law, so uh, when it comes to taxes, right? So uh, does Jewish law say you have to pay your taxes? Not directly. Jewish law doesn't say, Torah doesn't say pay taxes. But since we live in a country that says you have to pay taxes, so then Jewish law would say, Dina the Machuta, Dina, the law of the land is the law, and therefore you got to pay taxes. Why? Is it, is it Torah law? It's not Torah law, it's U.S. law. But again, Jewish law says you got to respect um, uh, the, the law of the land. So on a very basic level, we would say that if copyright law is a thing in the U.S., which it is, then if this case would come up today in 2023, a rabbi would say you got to respect local law. And local law says you got to respect the copyright. So no, you can't publish something that has someone else has a copyright on. That's not, that's not okay. Um, if we want to take this a little bit further, we encounter an interesting text, text number three. This is actually also going to play into the strike in Hollywood that's going on currently. Text number three says as follows. Um, and, and just a bit of a background on this. Um, this is where the Talmud gives credence to accepted practices among certain groups of workers, uh, vocations, guilds, unions, etc. Text number three. The donkey drivers are entitled to stipulate that one who loses his donkey should be provided with another donkey. I should probably explain what this is talking about. Imagine back in the day, you have no cars, you have no trucks, you have no Ubers. Listen to this. So I, we have, just parenthetically, we have, a, so this, we, we have every morning for two weeks now, like a, about a dozen yeshiva students who are usually out of town in yeshivas, but now they have a few weeks summer break that are learning here. That's why you see the, uh, if you see the, 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 um, the paraphernalia, I don't know, whatever you call that, the tefillin, the hats, the jackets. So they're in a different part of the building right now learning, um, but every day I get them breakfast from Kosher Gourmet, from, uh, from Toko Hills. But I'm not schlepping every morning driving there and back. Who, who has the time? So, and they, they can deliver, but they don't usually deliver. If they're delivering to Sandy Springs, it's a fortune for them to deliver. So what do I do? I open up my phone, I pull up the Uber app, Uber, and Uber now has a thing, it's called package. Instead of a ride, I don't need a ride, I need, I need food. So you hit package, and they say, are you sending or receiving? Receiving. From where? Kosher Gourmet. By the way, this class is not sponsored by Kosher Gourmet, but it sounds like it is almost. Anyway. $10.44. I'm like, that doesn't even, that covers no one's costs. Who's, how is that only 10 bucks? I don't even know what's happening. I make sure to tip, obviously. But it's, uh, it's crazy. I'm figuring, even if they split it 50 50, that's six bucks. Gas is probably three bucks. I don't, I don't know what's, whatever. Anyway, um, my point is that you have, back in the day, you didn't have Uber. 
or Uber package. You had donkeys, donkey drivers, back to the Talmud, right? You had a bunch of donkey drivers. And the donkey drivers, they had a bit of a, I don't know, I don't know, it was a mafia, whatever. They had a bit of a, a club, the donkey drivers club. And they had rules. And because they, they worked together. And they said, if, if any of us, like we have each other's back. So if you lose your donkey, your donkey runs away, right? So we'll, we'll provide you another donkey. They had their own, I don't know, maybe you paid in. Maybe it was like an HOA. What is HOA? Ho, um, what is HOA? Home Owners Association. Donkey Drivers a DDA. A Donkey Drivers Association. You got to pay in annually, quarterly, weekly, monthly. Who knows? I don't know. But they had a thing. If you, if you lose your donkey, we got you a new one. Okay, the brackets. Okay, let's continue inside text three. If, however, this was caused by negligence, they would not have to provide him with another donkey. All right, in other words, if you're a klutz and you lose your donkey, it's like, all right, I left my donkey by the river alone. I don't know if donkeys go to the river. I'm not a donkey expert, but whatever. If you're negligent, then, then, then it's on you. But if an accident happens, they're going to give you a new donkey. That was the way they operated, where this was done without any negligence in his part. He's provided with another donkey. That's just the way it worked, and that's the way it is. So the point of the Talmud is to say that if certain vocations, certain industries, like the Donkey Drivers Association of Ancient Babylon, so if the donkey drivers have their own way of doing things, right, so then... Um, that becomes almost binding. You have to pay in. You receive a donkey. You have to pr help provide the other guy his donkey. Right? So that's just the way it is. Let's turn to the next text. Um, and this also speaks to the same idea about implicit regulations in an industry that Jewish law respects. If merchants, this is top of 141, if merchants consistently conduct themselves according to a custom, even if they did not formally agree to this custom, nor did they verbally stipulate it, we may presume that anyone engaging in trade is doing so on account of this custom, and the custom is therefore binding on all merchants, as if it were expressly stipulated between the merchants or regulated by the bet in by the courts. Which means, it's not like the government has to have an official law in order for Torah law, Jewish law, to respect it. Even if... Remember, text two said the law of the land is the law. That's if there's a law in the books. In the United States of America, we say that Jewish law would respect that, assuming that it is you know, a monetary law that's just and, 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 and kosher. Um, however, more than that, taking it a step further, even if it's not a law in the books, even if it's just kind of an agreement, explicit or even implicit, amongst a certain trade, Jewish law says you have to abide by that, and you have to, you have to, you have to, you have to, you have to if, if, if you opt into that arena, to that vocation, you have to opt in by those rules. What's fascinating about that is that, you know, you think about this in the context of strikes. Can you cross a picket line? One could say, I'm, I'm not definitively arguing this, but one might say, based on these last two texts that we just read, that says that Jewish law respects the, um, the self-governance of a group of people that are working in the same area, if they all agree to strike, one might say that Jewish law says you can't go outside of that. You can't cross that picket line and, and work when no one else is working. It's not just about fitting into the crowd, but it almost has the way. It might, one could argue, I'm not necessarily arguing that, but one at least potentially could argue that it even has the weight of Jewish law now that you can't 
that you have to kind of abide by those, uh, by those bylaws and by, by the decisions that are made by the majority of that group. Does that make sense? So what's the point of all this? Like, why are we saying all this? So the point is like this. If we can say that copyright law is, or copyright is something that people respect within the publishing industry. In other words, the people respect each other's stuff. Like, I'm not going to publish your stuff. You don't publish my stuff. If you bought the commentary pre gonna I'm not going to publish it. Why? Because you bought it. And if I bought a different commentary, then I publish it. So, for example, this book over here, this Code of Jewish Law. So this has its commentaries, but there might be another edition right, that has another set of commentaries, and each one has their exclusives, and, and they respect it. If that's the case then Jewish law would likely say you have to respect that, even though when you look in the Talmud, does the Talmud talk about intellectual property? I don't know. Does the Talmud talk about copyright law? No. Uh, but we can say, based on the law of the land being the law and, uh, and um, conventional practices being respected is what Judaism uh, does say, what Jewish law does say. Therefore, we have to respect copyright. Now, there is a, another way that we can look at this question, and that gets into a very interesting case. And I'm going to, I'm going to go back to my go-to this morning. For whatever reason, by divine providence, this is, this is the class is focusing on bagels, so let's talk about bagels. Let's say I want to open up a rival kosher New York-style bagel place, kosher gourmet, right here. Or, even better, next door to the existing place. Can I open up a competing store next door to an existing store in the U.S.? What's the answer? Yes. Absolutely. I can open up a shoe shop next to a shoe shop, a barbershop next to a barbershop, a car dealership next to a car dealership. In fact, they're always next to each other when it's cars. I always wonder, is that intentional or it just kind of happens that they're like once one gets... Oh, what is this? Oh, really? Ah, well, then that makes sense. Interesting. All right. When it comes to Jewish law... We have an interesting teaching that says, yes, but, text 5. Let's read this. This is, again, from the Talmud. Uh, it says the following. A person may open a rival store next to the store of his fellow, and the established operator cannot prevent him from doing so. Because the rival can say to the established operator, you do as you wish inside your property, and I do as wish in my property. You have an ice cream shop, I have an ice cream shop. You offer... Uh, a colored sprinkles, I'll offer uh, neon colored sprinkles, and we all have our own thing. Let the customer decide who they want to support, and you can't block me, I'm not going to block you, everyone coexists, and that's it. Let's continue. Here's the caveat. Rav Huna, the son of Rav Yeshua said, it is obvious to me that a resident of one town who plies a certain trade can prevent a resident of another town from plying that trade anywhere in his town which means as follows. If you and I live in the same city, right? Let's say you have a shop. You have a barber shop. I, you live here. I live here. I can open up another barber shop. I can put it next to yours. I'm not doing anything wrong. Let the customer decide who they like. Both of us will, will be liked, whatever. But if you have a barber shop and someone lives out of town and they open up a barber shop in your town, then you can, then from a perspective of Jewish law, you can actually block them from doing so. You can say to them, don't mix into my town. You have your own town. Open up your rubber shop in your town. In other words, people who live in the same town, everyone needs to make a living. And so if someone's a barber, if two people are barbers, two barbershops. But someone who lives in another town, 
You say to them, why are you creating competition here in my town? Why are you taking, why are you fishing in my lake? Fish in your own lake, essentially, right? It's interesting. Oh, oh, good question. So now the question is, in, in Talmudic times, people didn't trap, people weren't as, borders weren't as fluid, right? So like, where do you draw the line? Atlanta, Sandy Springs, right? Alpharetta, like where do we, where do we, where do we draw that line as uh, outside of the territory? That would be a great question. I don't know that it's answered. I don't know that we have a clear answer from the Talmud, but that would be an open question. But you know, the question would also uh, um, come into play when, when you think of like big stores, larger chains, yes, that come in and shut down a local store, right? And people that are in, living in the community that are deriving their parnasa, their livelihood from the community, from the neighborhood, you know, and, and it's that, that style. They live there, they work there, they earn there, they make their money, they profit there, and then you have a larger corporation from out of town, from Arkansas, right, that's coming in and, and, and opening up a store um, and pulling away and, and basically fishing in someone else's territory. Is that kosher? It may seem like it's not, but there's a caveat. The caveat is that if the person that's out of town is doing something fa uh, fundamentally different than what you're doing, then it might be an exception to the rule, and they could do that. In other words, if it's exactly the same, but if Walmart, for example, well, what, what type of store would Walmart shut down, theoretically? Um, Mom and pop, like a, what, like a grocery? A clothing store. Let's say a clothing store. Say, let's say a small clothing store, like a local clothing store. Walmart could say, again, I'm not, I'm not saying for sure, I'm not saying anything definitively, I'm, I'm just going through the ideas. Walmart could say, oh, we don't only sell clothing. We sell clothing, we sell bikes, we sell uh, electronics, we sell pharmaceutical, yeah, we sell drugs, it's a drugstore, it's a grocery store, it's got all these things. You don't have all that, so we're providing something to the local populace that you don't provide, so it's not like we're in direct competition even though it's, it's going to swallow it. So then it might skirt these laws. This is more of a situation where it's, you know, you have a shoemaker. The shoemaker exists. His livelihood is because people there need shoes. You have another guy in another town who has a shoe store also. He's like, you know what? I'm branching out. I'm going to branch out to this market. And this guy's like, dude, you got your own city. Stay in your lane. I got to make. So the, is text five a little bit of an older school teaching? Well, yeah. The Talmud was written like, what, 1,600, 1,700 years ago. So for sure it's a little, a little bit older. And did people get around less? Yes. So how does it translate exactly? You know, it's, it's hard to know exactly how it translates. But one thing we do see here is that there, this, there is an idea of, of respecting the rights of someone in certain cases and not infringing on those rights. So when we think about, is copyright a thing in Jewish law? Well, I don't know about publishing rights, because this is not about publishing, but we do see respecting someone's space. Yeah. How, how do these laws get uh, uh, enforced? Good. You, can, you have a right outside. Yes. Right. Talking till he's blue in the face. Right. How do, how do, so your question is repeated. Your question is, how would these laws get enforced? The only context in which these would be enforced would be in a Jewish community where everybody is, I don't know, everybody, where, where, the, where the, the, um, the populace is, um, is wanting to do the right thing based on what Jewish law teaches. And when they have questions, they go to the rabbi. So that's the context over here. And what we're trying to do in this course is say, okay, this, that's not the society we live in today. But can we glean some wisdom 
from the way Jewish law operates and apply it to our modern cases. And that's, that's the extent that we're going to do this. But you're right. This is not, this is not something that would, <laughs> I don't think anyone can say. I mean, maybe if you live in certain uh, you know, more close-knit uh, Jewish areas, if you live in Borough Park or something, or somewhere where you know, people live like in a very um, you know, specific area with a very specific, almost you know, specific internal rules, you know, that are, that are abiding by Jewish law, maybe there you might get that thing where somebody will go to the rabbi and say, the rabbi, hey, this guy is opening up a shop or whatever it is, taking away business, and he's from out of town. You know, that's not cool according to Jewish law. And the rabbi may or may not, I don't know, it depends on the situation, may or may not uh, do something or say something. Would that be binding in U.S. law? Could the guy do it anyway? Sure. It's a free country. I don't think that, uh, I mean, you can't sue him. The, the, the only thing that could happen is, I don't know, the Jewish community might, might look as, askance at that person who's in violation of what would be a, in, in a case where they would be in violation of clear Jewish law. What does that mean practically? I don't know. I don't know. I can't sue the person. I mean, the courts, the U.S. courts wouldn't support it if it went against Jewish law. So, all right. Now, let's get into the, um, the idea of, of uh, sorry, the, the question of who owns ideas. We have an interesting text six. Take a look at this one. This is from the Midrash, Yalkut Shemoni. And it says the following, it quotes a verse, and then it gives a commentary on that. It says, the verse says, from Proverbs, don't steal from a poor man, for he is poor. All right, makes sense. So here's the teaching. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai said, someone who does not credit the source of an original statement when repeating it to others is in violation of the verse, don't steal from a poor man. In other words, this extends to ideas. When we talk about theft, it's not only tangible theft, tangible items. Yeah, don't steal from a poor man. If the guy has a bottle of water, don't steal a bottle of water. That's obvious. We're saying something a little bit more than that, or adding on to that, saying it's not only about tangible items, it's also ideas. If someone has an original idea, don't co-opt it and play it as your own. If you share it, say it, repeat in the name of the one that says, I heard from so-and-so this great idea. Repeat the authorship of your, um, uh, 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 um, give credit to the authorship of your, of your statement. By the way, we also see this um, in our in our country and with U.S. law, and I don't know if it's a law or maybe the practice that's done. I mean, if you want to republish someone's photo or whatever it is, I mean, you I mean that's clear. You have to have permission. You have to put the credits, and that's that's the way it works. So here, the, the in Jewish law, saying the same thing: if you take an idea from someone else, you have to credit. Otherwise, it's uh, plagiarism. That's not cool. Um, okay, let's take a look at. Text number seven. Text number seven also deals with not encroaching on someone else's space, something that we, we talked about before, but here it gets a little bit more fluid, as we'll see, because we're talking about fishing. Text seven, top of 143. Fishing nets must be kept away from a fish which has been targeted by another fisherman the full length of the fish's swim. Wow. What does that mean? It, it, here's what it means. If you're fishing, it's not cool to post up next to the other guy. Here you have a guy, he spread his net, he's got his, you know, cast his net, he's got his, he's got his rod. You know, I mean, if it's all fun and games and whatever, it's casual, that's one thing. But if the guy is fishing, because that's what he's doing for a living, it's not cool to be in that same area where the guy maybe has baited the waters and the fish are biting. Now you're, 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 you're taking that and, and, you're, and, you're, and, and you're going to take away his fish. It's not cool. So you have to move as far enough away where reasonably we could say, it says the full length of a fish's swim. Well, how, how far do fish swim? 
I mean, isn't that unlimited? Can a fish swim anywhere? It just means reasonably, like what, what's the area that the fish typically hang out? These fish in that area. And so you, you, you wanna make sure that everyone has their own space. Again, we're trying to protect people's um, livelihood and people's vocation and people's you know, ability to, to earn and eat. Um, which takes us to text eight. Text eight is a fascinating case study. This is our second case study for today. All right, this gets really interesting. I was asked by some, and, and by the way, the one who wrote this, the, the author of this question and answer is Rabbi Yecheskel Landau, who was the chief rabbi of Prague um, in the 1700s. So listen to this. I was asked by someone from Livarno the following question. And these are not the real names, but these are, these are just names of, of folks. Reuben authored a commentary on the Talmud. Sure. Reuben authored a commentary on the Talmud and wished to have it published together with the text of the Talmud. Okay, so here we have a guy named Reuben who authors a commentary, an original commentary on the Talmud, and he wants it published in the original work. Now, remember, this is the code of Jewish law. This is not the Talmud. If I wanted to show you a copy of the Talmud, I would have to walk all the way across the room over there and pull one from the shelf, which I won't do now. But let's pretend this was a copy of the Talmud. So you have the Talmud. The Talmud also looks, uh, it's kind of, it looks a little similar. It has um, the main text in the middle, the commentaries on the side. So this guy, Ruben, authors his own commentary. And now he wants it. I guess he has the money. He wants to publish it. He wants to get a new edition of the Talmud printed with his commentary. It's pretty bold. He must have been a very confident man. And a guy, obviously, with the means to pay for it. He wrote a commentary. He wants now a new edition of the Talmud with his commentary. Rashi. Tosfot, the big guns, and Reuben. Okay, great. He negotiated back inside, back to the story, he negotiated a fee with Simon, a publisher, to have the text of the Talmud printed along with the classical commentaries of Rashi and Tosfot on each side and the author's commentary on the bottom of each page. So here, so on each page you would have the Talmud, the Talmudic text, Rashi on one side, Tosfot on the other side. Those are the big guns, those are the big commentaries. And on the bottom of each page, Reuben's commentary, and, he, and he's willing to pay for it. He got the pockets, he's doing it. Now listen to this. Ordinarily, after the printing of a book is completed, printers dismantle the arrangement of the letters on the plate so that the letters will be available for other printing endeavors. Let me explain, I'm sure you all know what this is talking about. Back in the day, every, uh, typesetting was literally, they would take letters and arrange them on a plate and use the plate to print now everything is digital. It's all they don't. It's 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 a different it's a different uh, process. But back in the day, they literally had to move every letter, every character, and 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 uh, to, to to in order to print the book. So usually after you print the book, what do you do? You need the letters back. So you you take off all the letters and you use them for your next project because you need the letters. These would be Hebrew letters in this case, right? Obviously. Um, however, in this case says the Talmud. Good? All right. However, in this case, Simon, the publisher, who owned many sets of letters for other printing projects, the printer here has many letters. So he doesn't need them. So he decided to leave the arrangement of the letters designed for Reuben's publication on the plate. He left the plates. Simon intended to take advantage of the long hours and hard work that was invested in creating these plates 
in order to be able to publish in the future a regular edition of the Talmud with the classical commentaries without Rubin's commentary. So you hear what happens. Rubin pays this, this, pub, this, this printer, publisher, to typeset, layout the Talmudic page with his commentary on the bottom. So the printer thinks, here's what I got. I'm going to print this guy's Talmud, his own edition, and he's, this guy's going to sell it with his own commentary, great. Then what I'm going to do is I'm going to clear out the bottom of each page, and I'll print another set of Talmud without his commentary, and I'll sell it myself. You see what's going on here? He's basically reusing the design, the layout, sans Rubin's commentary. Rubin claims that since he paid for the work of arranging the letters of the Talmudic text, Simon has no right to benefit from this arrangement in the future without granting Rubin a share in the profits of the second printing of the Talmud. So, so Rubin, the guy who commissioned him to do this, says, hold on, you created a design, a layout for the Talmud, but I paid you for it. Therefore, if you want to reuse the design, you have to pay me royalties for each set of Talmud that you're going to sell. On the other hand, Simon argues that since the actual physical letters belong to him, he has the right to use them as he pleases. He says, I should pay you for my letters? These are my letters. These are my plates. I own everything here. I, you commissioned me. You paid me for your edition of the Talmud. I did everything that you wanted. I'm going to make my own edition. These are my letters, my plates. I'm going to use them again. That's what he says. Reuben has no right to demand. He says Reuben has no right to demand that he destroy the arrangement of the plates. That's Simon's claim. All right, so if you are team, so again, remember, Reuben is the guy who wrote the commentary and commissioned the new publication. Simon is the publisher, or the printer, who did the arrangement of the letters and now wants to reuse it, minus Reuben's commentary, to sell his own edition. So who, do, who are you, Team Reuben or Team Simon? Team Reuben. Team Reuben? Reuben? Team Simon. Are we splitting the class half and half? That's amazing. Wow, what, look what an aisle can do. Kidding. So it's, a, it's an interesting question. You know, a modern uh, version of this would be like this. Imagine you go to a designer, and a graphic designer. You say, you know, I, I want, um, I don't know, I, I want to design for a business that I'm opening up, uh, whatever. Right? And they create a design. Can they, and you pay them for it. Right? You, they, and they charge you a lot of money because it's a new design, original design. Can they take the design that they created for you and sell it to someone else? So, so by modifying, of course, a few details, right? Can they take that and resell it? You know, I, I think you and I would answer. It depends on the original uh, agreement. What was in the contract? Who owns? Who owns the? You know, who owns that work? Who owns the creative design? That would be an interesting question. I'm so sorry. No worries. No worries. Great, great to see you, Thank Cookie. You. All right. Well. Be well. You too. Um, so that's the question of who actually owns the work. When you hire someone, when you pay someone to work for you, who ends up, who is the owner of that, of the work, of the creative design? In this case, the typesetting. Is it the guy who commissioned or the guy who did the work? It's, it's a valid question. I'm going to cut to the chase and give you the rabbi's answer. Text number 11. Okay, after a few texts that we're skipping, text 11 on page 146, this is Rabbi Landau's answer to the question. He, the printer, has caused a great loss to the author. For if the printer had not published these second books, there would have been a great demand for Rubens, the author's work, which included the Talmudic text. Now that Simon, the printer, has printed his volumes, these volumes, which are cheap and in great supply, will reduce the demand for Rubens' work. In other words, if the printer prints his own edition, 
then he's going to dilute the marketplace and less people will buy the original work that had Rubin's commentary on it. So he's harming Rubin. Since the printer has caused the author a financial loss, we obligate him to pay all that he had benefited. Oh, sorry. Since the printer has caused the author, Rubin, a financial loss, we obligate him, the printer, to pay all that he benefited from the author's share in the typeset arrangement. In other words, if you want to reuse the design, but by reusing the design, you're going to harm the other party, then you have to now pay. So what we see here is an interesting take on copyright law or intellectual property. So who owns, who owns the design? So on the one hand, we say, look, Simon the printer, he created, he created the typeset. That's his artistic contribution. But he was paid, he was commissioned by a guy who paid him to do that. So you have one guy who's paying and one guy who's creating the art, right? So it's literally, you have, like if you think of the typesetter, the printer as creating a work of art. He's taking the letters and arranging it on a page. That's artistic, right? That, that layout is, 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 is a type of art. So you have a guy who commissioned the art, the artist who did the art, you know, who, who did the work, and now the question is who owns it? And so really what Rabbi Landau was saying is, um, you know, on one hand you could say that the artist owns the art, the typesetter owns his typesetting, but if he now tries to resell it and, re, and, and rework it in the marketplace, he's now hurting the original guy who paid him for all that work. You can't do that without some sort of compensation. If you hire an artist to paint an original work that you're going to hang in your home, right? And part of that is you like this artist, you like the style, and you know that no one else is going to have this piece. And the artist finishes painting and says, you know, this is really good. I'm gonna like, I'm gonna sell more of these. I'm gonna do more of these and sell them. And then you come back and say, great, now everyone's got a copy of it, right? Maybe uh, the artist does, what are they called, lithographs or whatever, prints, prints, right? Floods the marketplace. Does the artist have a right to do so if they were commissioned by someone to paint the original? It would be hard, I think it would be hard, we would be hard pressed to stop the artist from, re from painting something else or reselling it in a cheaper way and flooding the marketplace. But we do see at least the claim of the first guy. In this case, when it comes to selling books, the first guy says, no one's gonna buy my book if you flood the market and you charge cheaper because it doesn't have the commentary that I wrote, so it's probably gonna be cheaper. And so that's, he says that therefore there was some financial harm that was caused, and therefore it is considered to be unfair financial encroachment. So in conclusion, what we've seen today is that when it comes to copyright law, Although the Talmud doesn't speak directly to the issue of copyright, you know, do, do people who create works, do they have, um, the, you know, um, should they, do they have the protection of, of copyright law? Or is that just something that was invented in, you know, in other countries and, and later on and, and, and Judaism doesn't have that? What we've seen, you know, from, starting from the law of the land is the law. Going to the, the, um, the agreements made by certain vocations is binding to the idea of not opening up a store next to someone else if you're from out of town to the point of not fishing next to someone else you know if they've baited the waters and they've done the work to get it ready you can't swoop in and take the fish to the idea here that um, you know when somebody creates a work and is now going to harm someone else we don't let them harm the other we do see this notion of trying to protect the interests 
of, 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 of a person that has the copyright or paid for that work to be done. And so we do see that there is some, it seems like there is some protection within Jewish law of copyright. What I want to do to kind of conclude this, this, uh, this, uh, this session and really conclude the course, this would be a great way to conclude it, is a bit of a mystical understanding of ownership and property which gets back to, the, to a lot of the topics that we covered in this series. So let's do text 14. We'll just do one more text, and we'll close it out with this. The final word on page 149. Okay, here we go. Our sages declared that the Torah has sympathy for our possessions. In other words, in Torah law respects possessions and is not callous about you know, a person's uh, stuff. The Baal explains our possessions are valuable to the Almighty because there are sparks of holiness embedded in them and it is a person's duty to extract them and elevate them to holiness. So here's a bit of a spiritual take on our possessions that everything that we own has a potential, a holy potential, and our job is to, release, to, to, to kind of release that potential and to activate it. The order in which, back inside, the order in which these sparks of holiness are extracted and their relevance to our souls is as follows. Just as it is predetermined for each spark who will extract it, so too it is determined which sparks each soul must extract. For, these, for those sparks are pertinent to that particular soul. This is the meaning of what our sages said, one person cannot touch what is set aside for his friend, for it is impossible to earn a living from that which belongs to another. This is true in the material world because it is true in the spiritual world. Spiritual prophets are the sparks of holiness embedded in material objects. And each soul has its duty to extract certain sparks that are pertinent to that soul by virtue of its nature. Furthermore, the extraction and elevation of, these, of those sparks are related, sorry, is related to the essence of a person's soul, which means as follows. You know the last of the Ten Commandments? It says, do not covet. You know, what does that mean, do not covet? What's the problem with coveting? There's already a prohibition of do not steal. So what's the problem if I look and I covet? What's the problem? The answer is that it, it, it indicates that a person is missing the lesson that we just read in text 14. What does it mean to covet? To covet means that I want that person's stuff, right? That person's car, that person's house, jealousy. So what, but what does that really mean? It means that a person is saying, essentially, God got it wrong because God orchestrated it, right? Because you know, God runs the show, we believe that God runs the show, that that person has that thing. But I think that God got it wrong. It really should be mine. That's what we're, we're really saying that God got it wrong. But what we're also saying is that we believe that our purpose or our mission or destiny lies in what someone else has. And that's a misunderstanding of the way these things work. What you have is what you need for your physical and spiritual life. Yes, we can acquire more, etc. But if someone else has that thing, it means that they have a mission with that thing and not you. In other words, things are, things are allocated, things are predestined, and, and by way of divine providence, everything finds its way into the right hands. So if so, now, if somebody decides to sell it to you, great, they are consciously transferring it to you for your purpose, for your higher purpose. But if someone else owns it, for you to spend time, waste time thinking about their stuff, it's just a waste of time, because they have their mission with their stuff, you have your mission with your stuff. To quote, it's, saying, it's, a, it's a quote that says essentially the same thing, but maybe in cuter language, I believe it was Mark Twain once, once said the following or wrote the following, be yourself, everyone else is taken, right? That's, that's, the, that's the idea. Be yourself, everyone else is taken. You're going to worry about what this guy has or what she wears or this and that. Ah, you're wasting your time. 
I mean, there's no point, there's no problem if you're just looking around, but, but to really like spend your energy coveting and wanting and, and beating yourself up, how come they have and I don't have, it's a waste of time. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sense of misplaced energy and it's also not honoring, not honoring the stuff that we do have and, and the value and the work that, that's right in front of us. It's always easier to fix someone else's stuff, but really it's about, about working with the stuff that we have and, uh, and, and, and creating a, a better space for ourselves. And so on that note, um, I want to thank you all for being part of this six-week series. And uh, you guys were great. And I hope you enjoyed the lessons. Um, you know, the, the lessons, we covered a lot, of, uh, a lot of conversations. In lesson one, we spoke about choosing life, who lives who dies? We spoke about a case from the Holocaust. Lesson two, we spoke about end-of-life issues. Lesson three, we talked about beginning-of-life issues. Lesson four, we spoke about the power of speech. Lesson five, last week, we spoke about the, the attribute of truth. And today, we spoke about copyright and intangible property. Um, and I just, I, I hope that you enjoy the experience and uh, learn something. And I really enjoyed studying together with you guys. So thank you for being a part of it. And I, look and I look forward to the next ones. Exactly what I, I was going to say. Um, sorry? Yeah, we do have, yeah, we have a, well, so what we're doing here, so there's two things. Um, so I'm doing, a, I'm currently doing a Wednesday um, afternoon, Wednesday noontime, a business ethics four-part series. We just started, you were there? We just started um, uh, last Wednesday. We'll be doing it again in a few days at 12. Um, and then I'm, I'm following up, and I meant to follow up last week, and my apologies, but I'm going to follow up with Stephanie, and I'll get myself on the schedule for Ollie for one of the upcoming semesters, and we'll get also uh, some Ollie courses going on as well. So I'm looking forward to it. And, and I will mention one thing that's happening tonight, and I, I, um, I'll just put it out there, and, and if you can make it, it's worth, it's worth the, uh, uh, the effort to make it. We have a 95-year-old Holocaust survivor, Esther Bash. She's her nickname, and she'll talk about that story. Why she became known as uh, the Honey Girl of Auschwitz. She is. She came in yesterday. She flew all day with her daughter, literally all day. It's a ten-hour journey, and she lives two hours from the airport in Phoenix. She lives in Prescott, Arizona. Anyway, she uh, she arrived last night. I picked her up from the airport. I took her to the hotel. I took a selfie with her. This is this is me and her. If you guys can see, me and her. She is. She is, she is unbelievable. <laughs> 95 years old. She is the most beautiful person. You know when you meet people and you're like, wow, that person has such a kind, loving, generous spirit. And so she's going to be telling her story tonight. And her story is just, it's, it's, it's wild. Her story is, is on her, it was her, I don't want to give too much away, on her 16th birthday, May 28, 1944, is when the train took her to Auschwitz. She arrived in the death camp on her birthday, 16th birthday. She's going to talk about her experiences, how she survived, how she built her life, how she lives her life. And ultimately, it's a, it's a story that is just unbelievable, but also very inspiring. So if you can make it tonight, um, it's going to be taking place in the main sanctuary. We have a few hundred people coming. So if, you're, if you'd like to join, it's tonight. It starts at 7.30. Doors open at 7. Um, consider joining us and spreading the word. If you know of anybody who might be, uh, um, you know, might be inspired by this, by this event. I will also say 
that um, I spoke to her while, you know, in the car yesterday, last night, and she said she loves speaking to high schoolers, teenagers. So, if you know, <laughs> if you know any teenagers, <laughs> feel free to invite them. All right, good, 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 good. Yeah, and you mentioned, uh, Eugene, you mentioned that uh, you're, I know you're coming Shabbat. Yeah. The Shabbat, we're doing Shabbat out of Africa. It's a South African-themed Shabbat experience. A cantor from a synagogue in Johannesburg is coming for the weekend. We have a dinner Friday night, uh, a South African-themed dinner. It'll be a lot of fun. We've got chutney. We've got curry, fish balls. Yeah, gefilte fish balls. We've got the whole nine yards. South African decor. You don't have to be South African, by the way, to enjoy. <laughs> Anyone can enjoy a themed, a themed dinner. That's always fun. So, and all the stuff you can find out, um, the stuff that we do, you can always check out our website. It's called the, the thetorahcenteratl.org. That's a lot of words. Thetorahcenteratl.org has all that information. Um, and of course, check Ollie for your local listings. No, check your local listings for the latest and greatest with Ollie and what's coming up. We've got a lot, a lot, of, a lot of good stuff coming up. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you. Yes. Thank you so much. Is, is tonight Pleasure. going to be recorded at all? Tonight we're working on a recording. The audio will definitely be recording. I'm working on a good um, platform to get the video. We're not going to stream it, but I'm looking to try to get a good quality recording. We'll see if I can pull that off. Okay. It's hard. The room is a little bit hard to get, uh, to get something set up for that and get sound going without... Anyway... But I'll, I'm going to try. Okay. All right. Let me know. Pleasure. This fabulous course. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Muriel, great to see you as always. Good to see you too, All right. sweetie. Love you. Sei gesund. Only good health. Only good health okay. and blessings. Thank you. All right. You too. Very good. Uh, yes. Was that um, the, uh, you said the first time, was that the first court or was that the first decision? Which one? The one um, about... Um, oh, the first case study. Sarah, I think her name was Sarah Silverman. Oh, Sarah Silverman. Oh, that case. That's still ongoing. What? That's the, that case is still ongoing. She's sued. That's what I'm saying. So yeah. didn't go to the Supreme Court yet. No, no. I mean, I, I, I don't think it's been... It's not been seen by a judge yet. It's still in the beginning stages. It's an interesting lawsuit. Well, you know, there was something called West Publishing. Okay. I mean, I, no, I hear what you're saying. I, I don't know the, the so exact case. The uh Got it. Yeah. But they give access to Westlaw and another thing, and basically, in, in medicine, it's the same thing. There's things that you know. Right, where you can look up, you know, cases yeah. or whatever. 
So now you have a login basically and it's all on the computer. But they're still, they're still getting paid, whatever, they're still holding on to that. Right, but they compiled it, I guess. Yeah. You know what's interesting is my understanding of, and I don't, my understanding of U.S. copyright law when it comes to publications is that it's about 50 or to 50 to 100 years after the author's death that then you can, that, that it expires, the copyright expires, and then anyone can publish it. Which is why you find them bookstores, you can find like the classics, anyone can publish that, I think. Mm-hmm. By the way, in pharmaceuticals, and Jeff, you can correct me on this, but my understanding <laughs> no, well, my understanding is that um, the drug companies hold, is it seven years? Is it seven years. Seven years. But they can reformulate it. Yeah, well, we can change uh, a chloride to a sodium or something. You know? And then they can re-up it, yeah, which is what they do. Yeah. Well, you know, everyone gets all they've got to think about that, but it takes something like 15, 16 years. And, and lots of money. Right. Which is why, yeah, if you want to remove that, so great to see you. Thanks so much for uh, being part of it. Thank you. Um, thank you, thank you. But yeah, if you want the drug companies to keep on developing, we do want to incentivize them with a big payday. You know, my, my favorite story is without in the midst of my practice, there was a great non-steroidal medicine sort of a lead in motion took over, but it's called Oriflex. We see a lot of temporal medieval joints, especially in women with neck pain. And it was wonderful. It worked much better than the lead and everything. Good thing. Something like 20 million doses were given, three people died. Mm. Wow. I mean, the FDA pulled it. Yeah. And it never came back on the market. Wow. And can you imagine also, I think to your point, how much it costs them to, put, to, to roll that out with all the trials and everything, and then it's canned. That Operation Hurricane because it takes three, four years to even think right. about Right. And then we found That's out crazy. That. <laughs> <laughs> One question I have for you. Sure. All the references are ancient. Yes. Who is a contemporary? Good, good. Person? There are, so there are um, certain, like, um, like academic schools and rabbis that are, you know, current that, that that consistently speak about these things and new technologies and discuss it and debate it and then write papers on it and publish and then you know other people might have different opinions. So it is it is an ongoing conversation. A lot of a lot of that is happening in Israel. Some of that is happening here in the U.S. Yeah. One of the big areas that's that's just happening now is about lab-grown meat, which didn't come into conversation in this course. But it's a fascinating question. Like if you can pull a stem cell from an animal and then create meat, synthetic, you know. They call it clean meat now because it's, you know, whatever. But is that kosher? That's a good question. Right? And is it considered meat? If it comes from a stem cell, is it meat? Or could you slap on a piece of cheese on it because it's not meat? It didn't come from an actual, it's not the actual meat, it's a stem cell. About a year ago, I decided that I would think of applying to rabbinic school. Ah. And they have them on an online. Yeah, sure. But there was other things that I had to take care of, kids going to college, so I didn't do it. But... 
then I thought, you know, maybe if I couldn't get into rabbinic school, maybe I should become a moyo. <laughs> but I really enjoyed these, and I'm going to look for, for the philosophical, I'm going to look for more of your courses. Okay, great. Yeah, we're doing this business of this course, that's great. And any of the other ones, if you, you know, just reach out and check through Ollie, we got a lot of stuff coming up. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. Your, you know, I know you're having a trip to Israel coming up. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It'll be a lot of fun. <laughs> I, I, always, I never say no, but I can't go. <laughs> I understand. Very good. Great to meet you and great for you to be part of it. Thank you. Thank you. See you tonight and Shabbat. It's going to be a lot of fun. Good. We'll see you then. Great to see you. Oh, good. I get this. Look at that. We're going to give out hugs to all the guys. Sorry, ladies. I'm only... You're only a man. I'm all, what can I do? Thank <laughs> Bring you very it much. In. Enjoyed it thoroughly. Yeah, well, thanks for being part of it. you had uh, taught me in law school. I would have learned a lot more. <laughs> well, thank you. Have you ever taught at, uh, law school, at Emory Law School? I haven't, but I've, uh, I've thought about it. Yeah. I've thought about it. Yeah, here's my card. Oh. Not that I have any great connections here, but I'm happy to. This is great. What kind of law do you practice? I do mostly uh, commercial, corporate, real estate, okay. commercial real estate, contracts, nice. that kind of thing. So. Very cool. Kind of but Thank I'm you. I've always been interested in copyright. Yeah. Didn't even get into music, which is a whole other fascinating Oh, my gosh. My Sweet Lord was the classic case. And now they just released last week, I think they released a, a newly, I don't know, remaster or something track from John Lennon. Mm-hmm. Right in music and 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 people AI AI generated they they have Drake AI generated they have all these things that are AI generated sound exactly like the voice different lyrics different tunes and now the question is who owns that you know can there can Drake sue them for or is it I mean it may be good for his whole you know publicity but might be like sampling which is right exactly and there was that big court case that happened recently about sampling. I forget which one, and they got the court stopped. Yeah. The court said no. The, the jury said it was not a copy. I forget it was a big case, but anyway. Anyway, great you. to see you. Great to meet you. Glad you're part of it. Hey. Oh, good. Great. Amazing. Perfect. So you can just you can try to sign it online or scan it in. Yeah, I'll I'll figure it out. Yeah, I could probably just drop a digital signature. How are you going to try to record tonight? Um. Okay, so as far so the audio, 